We're in John chapter 4 today. If you have your Bible, thank you for being with us. We are in a summer series called Bedtime Stories, The Life of Jesus. And just all summer long, we're, we're not just talking about Jesus, but we're learning about Jesus. And we're trying to figure out from the life of Jesus how to, uh, how to better live our lives. Our ushers are going to go down the aisles. If you didn't bring a Bible today or if you don't have a Bible, if you'd like one, just wave at our ushers. They'll hand you one. We've given away more than 400 Bibles just like this since we began our church about 21 months ago. If you don't have a Bible, this one's yours. Write your name in it. Keep it. Go home. I'd encourage you this week to start reading in the book of John where we'll be studying from today. Because the more you read your Bible, the more you learn about Jesus. The more you learn about Jesus, the more ability you have to be like Jesus. And that, that is the whole point of Christianity. The word Christian means follower of Christ. The word Christ means Messiah or Savior. We know him to be Jesus. So really, this whole thing that we're trying to do, you heard Pastor Ryan mention our mission statement, that we exist to see people far from God become passionate Christians that make a difference in the world. What is a passionate Christian? It's someone who loves Jesus and tries to follow Jesus. So all summer long, we've been studying about Jesus. We've been watching how he interacts with people. We, we saw how he grew up and how he grew spiritually according to the word of God. And today we see one of the most interesting and well-known interactions in Scripture between Jesus and a person. In John chapter 4, after studying it the past few weeks and after putting together our Bible study today, I mean, there really are a dozen different sermons that could be preached from John chapter 4 on a dozen different topics. But today we're going to choose one. Today we're going to choose the topic of the conversation that Jesus and this woman engaged in. But we'll be in John chapter 4. We'll start, start in verse 1. We'll go through verse 26. Um, and here's, here's the story that we're going to read about Jesus today. It says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it wasn't Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea, and he went back once more to Galilee. So he was heading north, if you're looking at a map in Israel. Uh, now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews don't associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the water is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and who drank from himself and as did also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up. To eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Verse 19, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you'll, you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. 
For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, the English word for Messiah would be Savior, if you want to jot that in your Bible. Messiah is a Hebrew word. Christ is a Greek word. The English word Savior, they all mean the same thing. She said, the woman said, I know that a Savior, that's what she said, I know that a Savior is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Now, there is so much to learn in John chapter 4. Some of our small groups later this week will get together and they'll go deeper into John chapter 4. And they'll talk about how to engage people in conversations and turn a conversation spiritually. They'll talk about how to have difficult conversations. They'll, they'll talk about how to be aware of someone's past without being judgmental of someone's past. I mean, there's a lot of good in John chapter 4. But as I read this chapter... And I focus in on where Jesus was going. I read this chapter and I hear Jesus talking about worship. So that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. If you look at the back of your bulletin, our Bible study outline today is just titled Worship Is. Because I want to talk to you today about worship. When you listen to our mission statement, the, uh, you'll see a word in our mission statement. We exist to see people who are far from God become passionate Christians and make a difference in the world. That word passionate in there is where worship fits into the life of a Christian. And let me ask you this question today. How are you as a worshiper? How would you rate your life on worship? On a scale of 1 to 10, would you say that your worship to God is a 10? Would you say that it's a 1? Would you not really understand that question? Would you say, Christian, do you mean how loud do I sing? How well do I know the words? Christian, do I raise my hands? Christian, what do you mean? What what, do you, what, what exactly is worship? And I'm glad you asked that question because Jesus today, when he talks to this woman in John chapter 4, really helps us to know what worship is. And if we're going to be a church that is, that is seen both on the inside and the outside as people who are passionate about Jesus, we have to figure out this element of worship in our life, and we have to figure out this element of worship in our church to see who we want to be and what we want to present to the outside world who's trying to figure out Not just what a Christian looks like, but what a passionate Christian looks like. What is worship? I'm glad you asked that question. I'm glad Jesus gives us the answer today. I want to give you three things. And then I hope to leave you today with an illustration that you will never forget for the rest of your life. As you focus on your own heart, spirit, mind, life of worship. What is worship? First and foremost, according to Jesus in John chapter 4, worship is an understanding. Worship is a correct understanding of who God is. We can't properly worship God until we understand who God is. We can't properly worship God until we understand God's place in our life. We can't properly worship God until we understand the relationship that God has extended to us. Now, Webster's Dictionary defines worship as this, and it's, it's a big definition, but I hope you'll write it down. I'll reference it at every point. Webster's Dictionary defines worship as something that is worthy of reverence, Something worthy of extravagant respect, something worthy of honor, something worthy of devotion, something worthy of praise. So worship actually comes from two words, worth-ship. Worship is saying that something is worthy of something. So worship is when something is worthy of reverence, something is worthy of extravagant respect, something is worthy of honor, something is worthy of devotion, something is worthy of praise. So if we limit worship to a song, to how loud we sing, to how much a song feels good in our heart, to whether or not we raise our hands or not, we're really limiting what worth 
worship is. Worship is saying God's worthy of my reverence. He's worthy of my extravagant respect. He's worthy of my honor. He's worthy of my devotion. He's worthy of my praise. So my question to you today is, do you understand worship? Do you understand what worship means in your life? Now, I believe that a lot of Christians don't properly understand worship, just like this woman in John chapter 4 didn't properly understand worship because they don't have a clear understanding of their relationship with Jesus. Let me show you what I mean by this, and let me preface it with a question that we see presented in John chapter 4. And here, here's the question, because the way you answer this question will tell me a little bit about your understanding of who God is in your life. Would you say, when, when, when you became a Christian, or as you try to follow Jesus, would you say that Jesus saved you, or that Jesus gave you eternal life? Because there's a big difference in the heart and the life of people who believe that they have been saved or rescued by Jesus versus those who are following Jesus because they desire to have eternal life. You say, Christian, I'm not not real sure of what you're saying. Look at the conversation in John chapter 4 again if you still have your Bibles open. Because as we see the progression of Jesus' conversation with this woman in John chapter 4, we see someone who without a heart of worship who without a heart of reverence, who without a heart of devotion, who without a heart of praise, clings gladly to eternal life because in reality, who wouldn't? Like, who wouldn't? And if you follow Jesus for eternal life, it doesn't demand a lot of reverence, extravagant respect, honor, devotion, or praise. It doesn't, eternal life doesn't demand those things. It just, it, eternal life is much more self-focused than God-focused. And in John chapter 13, John chapter 4, verses 13 through 15, we see Jesus roll out this beginning of understanding of God. And he said this, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Stop right there. He didn't even have to ask her, do you want this water? He said, I can give you something that will result in eternal life. And what is her Uh, response. Verse 15, the woman said, sir, give me this water. I'll take it. You see, if, if, if our relationship with Jesus is based around eternal life and our understanding of God is the one who gives eternal life, then our level of worship will be very, very, very low because our relationship with God centers on us, not God. And this woman, Jesus said, you know, I can give you water that will result in eternal life. And she said, I would love eternal life. I'll take it. I'll have it. She didn't talk about God. She didn't talk about reverence. She didn't talk about forgiveness. She didn't talk about devotion. She didn't talk about praise. She was just like eternal life. Yes, I'll I'll have that. Please. Thank you. But then Jesus goes a step further. Look at verse 16. We'll start in verse 15. The woman says, sir, give me this water. Like I would like eternal life, so I won't have to come here. But then Jesus, Jesus now focuses on her heart, not just her eternal life. He told her, go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands. And the man that you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Verse 19, see the seriousness of the moment. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming When you worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, the Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, 
and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that a Savior. Understand what Messiah means. I know that a Savior is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. You see, she went from grabbing eternal life without even a conversation on worship, on God, on who she was, on what she needed, on salvation, on forgiveness. She grabbed eternal life because who wouldn't? Like, who says no to eternal life? But Jesus drew in. He said, you don't understand. It's more than that. And he began to, he began to talk to her soul. And he began to talk to her past. And he began to talk to her life. And very quickly, she went from being someone who wanted to grab hold of eternal life to someone who by her own words in John 4.25 says, you know, I understand that you understand how bad my life has been. I understand that you understand how many mistakes that I have made. I understand that you understand that what God says about worship, I cannot fulfill. She, she goes into this whole dialogue about, I don't even know how to worship God, and I can't feel close to God. And the Jews say one thing, and the Samaritans say another. And she gets to verse 25, and she said, the truth is, I need a Savior. And one day I hope he'll come. You see, when we focus, when our focus on God is on how he has saved us from our sins, how he has forgiven us, how he has given us a second chance, when our understanding of God is more about God than us in eternal life, true worship is created in the heart of a person. Let me show you another example. In Luke chapter 18, we meet someone who comes to Jesus who wants eternal life. But he's not really looking for a Savior. He doesn't really think he needs a Savior. In Luke 18, starting in, um, in verse 18, you don't have to turn to it. It'll be on the screen behind it. Um, it says, a, a rich young ruler is what this, the text is titled in the Bible, came to Jesus and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? See, you, you see someone here focus much more on the next life than on this life. Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. Don't commit murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these have kept since I, I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 26, those who heard said, then, then who can be saved? See, a man came to Jesus and said, I would love eternal life. And Jesus said, you have to realize that for eternal life, you first need to realize what you lack spiritually, that you can never provide for yourself. You have to trust in me and you have to cling to me in a life of worth, of, of worship, of worship. You have to show me reverence and extravagant respect and honor and devotion and praise. I can't just give you a get out of hell free card. You, you need more than a token of eternal life. You need to experience true salvation. And this man didn't get it. And he said, you know, I want to go to heaven, but... Um, but I, I feel like my life is good enough. I don't feel like I need a Savior. I just need eternal life. So help me figure that out. And he had someone whose heart didn't understand worship. As opposed to the woman we meet in Luke chapter 7. In Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 47, we meet someone with a genuine heart of worship. It said, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. A woman in that town who'd lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. 
One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water from my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown, but, forever, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And I feel like we've got a lot of people who have grown up in the church who, who love very little because they have such a high view of themselves and such a low view of God. And they think, you know, if anyone could have almost made it into heaven, I could have almost made it into heaven. And the people on the outside of the church, they're really bad. And we'll, man, we'll pick it and we'll protest and we'll talk about how bad the world is. But we see ourselves as pretty good. And because of that, we have a low level of worship because we have a high view of self. Where Jesus says to the woman in John chapter 4, when he exposes her need for a Savior, which Jesus says in Luke chapter 7, when he exposes the Pharisees' need for a Savior, what Jesus says in Luke chapter 18, when he exposes the rich man's need for a Savior, he said, listen, you've got no chance without me. And when you realize that, it results in a heart of worship. It results in a heart of devotion. It results in a heart of reverence. It results in a heart of extravagant respect. It results in a heart of praise because you realize that I am the missing element to your life now, to your future, to your forgiveness, to your eternal life. I am the only thing. David said there's no one on earth who's good. Not one person on planet earth who's good. But when Jesus is in us, we can be good and pleasing to God. So there, there needs to be an understanding first that worship comes from having a high view of God. And I don't want to say a low view of self, but a correct view of self. That without God, we're nothing. And when I look at Luke chapter 7, I want to see myself as the woman wiping Jesus' feet, not sitting at the table thinking I'm some kind of spiritual equal with him. I want to depend much on Jesus. I want to be desperate much for Jesus. And we have a church who's content to be saved for eternal life, but to kind of make it on our own spiritually And that understanding will result in a low view of worship. So a high view of worship starts with a high view of God and a view of self that's desperately needing Jesus. Secondly, worship, according to Scripture, is a lifestyle. Worship is not just an understanding. A correct understanding of God will lead to a lifestyle of worship. And worship will be seen in the way that we live our lives, in the way that we act and react, in the ways that we don't. Act and don't react. In Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. We should actually turn in our Bibles and underline that verse if you don't have that underlined yet. That is such a good verse, Romans 12, 1, for people who want to know what is worship. Paul defines worship for us in Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is true and proper worship. So true and proper worship is really a lifestyle lived every day for Jesus. Verse 2, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. True worship is living every day for Jesus. Now, let's go back to the definition of worship that we began with. Worship is showing something as being worthy of reverence, worthy of extravagant respect, worthy of honor, worthy of devotion, worthy of praise. So when I talk about a lifestyle, 
I love a little outline that I heard years ago in church that kind of encompasses life. Um, I, I heard someone say, um, do you worship? You can judge your spiritual life by grading the, the following four areas. And I think they'll be on the screen behind me. But as you look at your life, do you worship with your time, with your talent, with your treasure, with your temperament? And, and I want to talk to you about each one of those. And I think they'll be on the screen behind me. And you can leave those up for this entire point. Do you worship? Do you show God reverence? Do you show God extravagant respect? Do you show God honor? Do you show God devotion? Do you show God praise with your time, your talent, your treasure, and your temperament? Let's talk about your time. Do you show God is worthy of reverence, extravagant respect, honor, devotion, and praise with your time? Do you give God any time in your daily schedule to seek Him, to know Him, to praise Him? To pray to him. Does God have any of your time on a regular daily basis? Do you worship God? Show him honor by giving him some of your time. Do you worship God by giving him time in in your week? You know, we have hundreds of volunteers at our church, but, but we have a handful, probably a dozen or so, that serve every Sunday in a functioning role. And I mean, they really go above and beyond the call of duty that everyone else is following. But when you look at just the time that people put in, I just want you to think about time. You know, if you put in two hours every Sunday, and we'll, we'll just act like you missed two a year, even though all of us are not here 50 Sundays a year for the most part. But let's say that all of us were here 50 Sundays a year, and all of us put in two hours of time serving God on Sunday morning outside of the time that we sit in church, an hour before, hour after, two hours before, then none after, no time before, but two hours. Let's just say we put in two hours. Now, over the course of a year, that's 100 hours. That's less than three full weeks of a work week. So I just want to talk about time. Do, do we honor God? Do we give extravagant respect? Do we have extreme reverence? Do we give great devotion? Do we give great praise to God with our time? Do we honor God with our time? Now, I'm not saying everyone needs to do that. Not everyone can do that. But I'm saying a lot of times we look at our time as something we give up rather than we invest. And, and we don't see our serving as worship. You know where we never have problem getting people to serve on Sunday? On the stage. And it's not because... In my opinion, the people we have on stage, not because any of them want to be on the stage in front of people, but they see this as worship. But they don't see that as worship, running the computer. And they don't see working the next steps tent as worship. And they don't see passing out the Bibles or passing the offering plates as worship. But they, and they don't see greeting as worship. And they don't see rocking a baby as worship. And what if all of it is worship? Would that change your perspective on how much time that you would invest for the kingdom? What if all of it was worship? You see, God says worship is a lifestyle that we should devote time to. How about your talent? What do you do really, really well that you could invest for God? What, do you, what, are, what are you better than most people at? What comes easily for you? What comes naturally to you that you could invest in spiritually? God, I do this really well so that I, I want to I use this for you. I can build stuff. I can run stuff. I can wire lights. I can run a computer. I, I know how to... to build a website, you know, Christian, I'm a teacher. I know, I know how to correctly take something on a curriculum and teach it to people. I'm good with little kids. I'm good with adults. I'm friendly. I like to shake hands. What are you really good at that you can invest for Jesus? How about your treasure? Do you honor God 
Give him extravagant respect. Do you have extreme devotion and praise in the way that you give? Two weeks ago, I sat on my couch with a very good friend. I was sitting in a chair in my living room. He was sitting on the couch. And, and we were not arguing, but we were just talking. He said, you know, I just don't know that I have to, I don't know that I have to give 10% of my money. I, you know, I know all the verses on tithing and all that stuff, but I just, you know, I don't know that that's for me. You know, I just, I don't know that I have to give 10%. That's, that's, those were his words. I don't know that I have to give 10%. I said, of course you don't have to give 10%. But I said, would you use that phrase speaking to Jesus? What if giving were not about money? What if it were an act of worship? Would you look at someone who had given everything and say, I don't know that I have to give 10%. See, when we make it about worship and not about money, it's like, man, like the government takes more than that, right? I mean, when we make it about worship, it changes. See, a lot of us, it's not that our worship is messed up. It's that our understanding of worship is messed up. We see worship as three songs on Sunday. Worship is a lifestyle, and it encompasses everything. Listen, I don't care if you ever give anything. But one day when you stand before God, I I want to say, man, I tried to honor you with my money. For me, it's not about a quota. It's not about a percentage. But if God said this was the standard, it's like, gosh, of course I'll meet that. That's all you, are you sure that's all you want is 10%? Are you sure that's all you want? Because I owe you everything. Worship says I owe you everything. 10 is easy. But that's a heart of worship. You see, it's all in understanding. How about your temperament? You know there are things in Scripture that talk about the temperament of someone who worships. Do you know that every week you have a right to get angry at people, to get offended by certain things? But do you know that Scripture says an act of worship is to overlook an offense? Do you know that as a Christian, when someone does something wrong to you, when you say, you know, I'm just going to choose to ignore that, you're worshiping God with your attitude? Do you know that those of you who like to complain and gossip, and you could complain and gossip all you want when you remember the verse, do everything without complaining, and you say, you know what, I'm really upset about this, but I'm not going to complain. You're worshiping God with your temperament by choosing to obey Scripture. You know when someone does you wrong and you just want to go tell someone what has happened, do you know you worship God when you honor the proverb that says a wise man conceals a matter, and you say, you know, I'm just going to let this one go. I'm not going to, I'm not going to spread this one ever. I'm going to worship God with my temperament. I'm going to, I'm going to rise above this. I'm going to worship God when I turn the other cheek. I'm going to worship God when I go the extra mile. I'm going to worship God when someone lets me down. See, worship is a lifestyle. And you can worship God with your temperament. When you choose to do what God says instead of choosing to do what's easy or what's natural, you're saying with your life, today I'm going to choose to worship. And it's not a song, and I'm not raising my hands, and I'm not at church, but I have the opportunity to respond here. I have the opportunity to react here. I have the opportunity to act here. And because my life demands worthiness of reverence and extravagant respect and devotion and honor and praise to God, I'm going to do it God's way this time because I want to worship Him. It's not even about that person. I'm just going to do it God's way because I want to worship Him. You know, last Sunday we had an unbelievable Sunday in our church. I don't know that I'll ever forget last Sunday in our church. We had last Sunday at the end of services, our altars were packed, if you weren't here. We had 35 people that raised their hands to make a decision after church. And I posted that on our Facebook account. Um, I was so excited. Sure, you can clap if you want. God, God did it, not us, but thank you, God. Um, but I, I, I tweeted that out. And for those of you who don't know what Twitter is, it's kind of like text messaging to the Internet. Um, and it ended up on my Facebook account. Man, praise God, 35 people made decisions. And some guy who I used to be Facebook friends with um, got on my Facebook page like 10 seconds after I made that post and basically said, how do you know that any of them are following Jesus and how do you know that some of them just didn't want to go to heaven? And I wanted to respond 
So I was angry. And that, that's my heart. I thought, you know what? I'm not going to question people. I'm going to celebrate God. How do I ever know what anyone means spiritually? I'm just celebrating what I saw God do. But I thought, you know what? In an act of worship, I'm not going to respond. And I just and several people had started bang getting on there and defending our church. And I thought, you know, here's another gang war on my Facebook page. You know, everybody's always fighting on my Facebook. So I just deleted all the posts. And then I went and I, you know, I thought I'm not going to let I'm not going to let this guy cause trouble anymore. And I deleted him off there. And I thought, Lord, I'm going to I'm going to give you this issue where I'd like to respond in pro- I'm going to give it to you as an act of worship. I'm not going to get angry. I'm not going to respond wrong. I'm not going to respond. You know, and, and I'll be honest, I don't know that it would have been spiritually wrong for me to confront him. But it was an act of worship for me to leave it alone and just say, God, it's yours. So how do you work? How's your lifestyle worship time, talent, treasure, temperament? You see, lifestyle worship becomes both clear and contagious to others. People see a life of worship and they realize something's different. Matthew 5:16 was one of my favorite verses growing up. My dad is here today and my dad taught me that verse when I was in middle school. It was one of the verses we learned at Fellowship of Christian Athletes camp. So let your light so shine before men that they see your good deeds and they glorify your God in heaven. The thought was you can live your life in such a way that when people look at you they say, "Man, praise God for that guy." And praise God for that lady. You know, I don't even know God, but if that's the way a Christian responds, like, thank God as a boss she didn't tear my head off. Thank God as an employee he didn't quit on me when everyone else. There's just this thought that people see your life and they're like, man, thank God. And worship becomes contagious. In Acts chapter 4, verse 14, some people hated the disciples. They were insistent that Jesus was not real, that he had no power, except that they had healed someone. And he was standing there with them. And it said they wanted to throw him in jail, but when they saw the guy standing there and he was well, they couldn't say anything because they saw that God had changed his life. Listen, some of you love Jesus, but your attitude stinks. You're always angry. You're always bitter. You're always grumbling. You are not living a life of worship. You're not living a life of worship. One day when you get to heaven, everything will change because your heart will be transformed. I can choose not to use foul language. Can I, can I cuss every now and then and still go to heaven? Yes. But that's not a life of worship. I can choose not to listen to certain things on the radio or watch certain things on TV. Now, will I, could I still go to heaven if I did those things? Yes, but that's not a life of worship. That's me living for eternal life, not to worship God. So I try to worship God in the way that I live my life. And when we have a lifestyle of worship, it creates an atmosphere that is clear and contagious for others. But then thirdly, worship is an action. Worship is an action. There, there is an element of worship that is actually speaking, that is singing, that is celebrating who God is and what God has done. And, and, and we have actions of worship, or we try to on Sunday morning. In Psalm 9, verse 11, the psalmist says, Sing praises to the Lord who reigns in Jerusalem. Tell the world about his unforgettable deeds. Part of worship is singing. Part of worship is celebrating. In Luke 19, 37 through 40, I love what Jesus said about the creation worshiping him. He says, when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in a loud voice for all the miracles they'd seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees said to, the, said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus said, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Listen, somebody's got to worship Jesus. Why? Because he's worthy to be praised. Because he is God. And we need him. We need him for the breath that I'm breathing in this sermon. We need God for the blood going through our veins. We need God for the heartbeat that's pulsing in our chest. God is worthy to be praised. So somebody ought to worship God. And we see that part of worship is, is an action. And, and I'll be honest with you, man, it, it's my goal that one day our church would be a worshiping church. 
But I don't know that we're there yet as far as engaging spiritually on Sunday morning in publicly praising God. Some, it's because we don't know the songs. Some, it's because we're uncomfortable. Some, because it's, it's just totally outside of the box. Some, we, we worship, but we're very reserved. But I asked our teenagers last week at camp, I said, look, man, your, your boyfriends and girlfriends aren't here. Your parents aren't here. Your friends who don't love Jesus aren't here. It's just you. So my challenge for you this week is to worship with reckless abandon. Do whatever you would want to do if you could do anything and never have anyone make fun of you. And Do what you think you do on the first day of heaven when Jesus got up to lead the courts. And by the end of the week, that you know, a lot of those teens were raising their hands, they were closing their eyes, they were singing out loud, and they all said on the last night, being able to worship, I just felt something inside my heart change. I just felt something inside, when I, you know, when I released myself, like to praise God, I just felt something inside my heart change. And it's my goal that one day our church will embrace that, and one of the things that's known about our church will be, man, when you go in there, people really worship. I used to think that worship turned off unchurched people, that they would come in and see people singing, see people raising their hands, and they would think that's really weird. What I've learned is the exact opposite. Unchurched people have told me when I see that I want that. And I'm not sure how that happens or why that happens, but I clearly see people who have something in here that I don't have. And I've heard that dozens of times from unchurched people who have come to our church. Yet I don't know that our church is to the point yet of verse 24 where we have designed a worship experience at our church to be where we worship in spirit and in truth. That means we're going to sing a little bit. We're going to study a little bit of the word of God. We're we're going to worship. But but we've designed a worship service that looks like this. Give, receive, give. You say, what do you mean by that? Give, receive, give. We've designed a worship service where people spiritually can come and give. People can receive and get filled up, and then people can give. You say, what what do you mean by that? We've designed a worship service experience, because this is how we see it in the Old Testament and the New Testament, where people come together, and the first thing they do is give praise. That's why we sing. That's why we worship at the beginning. And I'll, I'll tell you how I know our church hasn't embraced being a worshiping church yet, because rarely is anyone on time. And the people that are on time are worshiping coffee and donuts more than they're worshiping Jesus, because that first song hits... And you're all hanging out out there. And it's like we have missed as a, as a pastor, I have missed in relaying the importance of the information that I just gave you, that we've designed a service so you can come in and give praise. We have started 915 services with like less than 10 people in here before. And it's like, Lord, all 10 of us, glory to God. We love you. Please let some more people come. Uh, you know, I mean, that, that's like the prayer often. I tell people, I never even turn around on the front row because I'm just, you know, until the welcome, it's like there's no one here because we've not embraced the importance of giving praise. And then we receive through the message. So we give praise to God. Then we sit and we get filled up spiritually. Man, open God's word. Let's learn. Let's teach. Let's be touched. Let's be challenged. Let's be convicted. If you don't leave here having learned something, if you don't leave here having been encouraged, if you don't leave here having been convicted, if something I say doesn't make you think for the next two or three days about your Christianity, I'm not preaching hard enough and the Holy Spirit's not moving fast enough. Because every time we open God's Word, it should convict us about something in our heart that we should chew on for a while as we grow spiritually. And then after we receive and get filled up, we give back out of gratitude and obedience in the offerings. That's how our service is designed. Give praise, receive from God, give back. But not everyone participates in all of that every week. And I'll be honest, I'd like to see us go to that place as a church, but it begins with an understanding, continues with a lifestyle, and then lastly results 
in actions of reckless abandonment, of just being excited about who Jesus is. You know, Helen Keller, I'm sure all of you have heard her name. Some of you probably know her story well, was born in 1880 in Alabama. Some of you may not know until the age of 19 months, she could both see and hear. She got a case of scarlet fever mixed with meningitis when she was 19 years old, and she lost all her sight and all her hearing. And from that point, could never hear or see anything else. Yet she didn't quit living her life. She was the first person that was both deaf and blind to ever graduate from college with a bachelor's degree. She ended up writing 12 published books. She became a world-famous speaker. And one of her famous quotes to graduates when she would speak at graduations about graduates living with purpose and having vision for their life, one of her famous quotes was this, it's a terrible thing for people to see but to have no vision. It's a terrible thing for people to be able to physically see but to have no vision for their life. I thought about that quote about six months ago as a string of prayer requests began to come in to our church. And about six months ago, we have a uh, a young man in our church um, whose name is Spencer Roberts. You're going to meet him in just a minute. He's 24. He's going to be 25 in in August. Um, And Spencer, with the help of his mom and dad, who was born with Down syndrome, he has a type of Down syndrome that only affects one in every 25,000 people. Uh, At age six, he... uh, developed leukemia and he fought it for three years with chemotherapy treatment and other things he's had 17 surgeries um, in his life beginning the first day that he was born and stretching ongoing but if you know spencer well um, his prayer request was that god would loose his tongue so that he could communicate and particularly this every week our staff would get together and pray and we'd see spencer's prayer request pray that my tongue would be loosed so I could worship. Pray that my tongue would be loosed so I could worship. Pray that I could figure out how to enunciate with my words so I could worship. And man, our staff has been praying that for Spencer. And I'd ask you to start praying for that if you're a prayer warrior. But as I read that prayer request over and over and over, I thought about Helen Keller's quote, it's a terrible thing to see but have no vision. And I thought, man, what a terrible thing for people who have every ability to worship to not even care. While you've got this kid crying his guts out that God would loose his tongue so that he could worship. And as I studied John chapter 4 and realized Jesus was talking about worship, I thought, you know, I think it's time that we allow Spencer to help lead our church in worship. Because you need to see his heart. You need to see his understanding. You need to see his lifestyle. And and you need to hear him. So, Spencer, I'm going to ask you to come up here if you would. His name's Spencer. I call him Spencer. And band, I'm going to ask you to come up here if you would. And I want, to close, I want to close today's service, and we'll come back and we'll pray after he's done, and we'll take our offering. But I'd like you to see what an understanding and a lifestyle and actions of worship are. Spinner, come, come right on over here with me, dude, if you would. You ready to go? Spencer and his brother were the first ever brother tandem. Um, to act out the Jelly Bean Conspiracy. It's a famous play. The star of the show is a special needs young man, and they went to the Edinburgh Festival. He celebrated his 18th birthday in Edinburgh, Scotland, as he and his brother acted out this play with their acting troupe. Um, But Spencer's going to worship for us today. And here's my challenge for your heart. For those of you who have a tongue to worship, but you don't, 
I hope Spencer challenges you. And I hope God's word today has dug deep into your heart about what an understanding of worship is, what a lifestyle of worship is. And it may be just maybe your response will be actions of worship as we move forward as a church. So Leslie, will you and Spencer lead us?
Aren't you glad Spencer got to lead us in worship today? <laughs> Good job, Leslie. Be seated if you would. Now, how sad it would be for those of us who have the ability to stand up and yell and clap and sing to never worship. And how bad it would be to allow us to keep an attitude of worship. Well, I had a bad week, or I had a bad month, or I had a bad year, or I don't like this, or I don't like this. See, extreme need leads to extreme worship. And when we can quit focusing so much on ourselves, and we can have a big God and a little self, we can develop an understanding of worship, a lifestyle of worship. We can develop actions of worship. And my goal today is that our church would be filled with worshiping people, not just on Sunday when the music's playing, but all week long. People with their time, their talent, their treasure, their temperament, their spiritual understanding, their actions in life would be actions of worshiping a holy God because he's worthy. He, he's worthy of, as, as we described it earlier, he's worthy of reverence. He's worthy of extravagant respect. He's worthy of honor. He's worthy of devotion. He's worthy of praise. That's who my God is. And I promise you, the closer you get to God, the bigger God will become. The smaller you'll become like John the Baptist. He'll become greater. You'll become lesser. And you'll develop a lifestyle of worship. That's my goal for us. Would you pray with me as a church? Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name today. And Lord, we're thankful for this conversation in John chapter 4, which really teaches us so many things, but more than anything is central to our understanding of worship. God, I thank you as a Christian for your extension of eternal life to me. And I grab onto it and I hold it and it's real. And yes, I love you because, Lord, you offer immortality. I love you because you offer the ability for the grave not to hold us. I love you because... God, you offer the ability to raise again once this life ends. But God, I worship you because my life, the deeds of my life, my past, they demand a Savior. I'm like the woman at the well in John chapter 4 who I want to grab on to eternal life, but I know my life really doesn't deserve it. And at the end, I end up in a discussion about a Savior who would be worthy of all of my life because I can't have a relationship with God without Him. And God, I pray for the men and the women in our church today. Pray for those who will watch by video or listen through podcast. God, that you will break our hearts in worship. And when we think about worship, that we'll forever remember Spencer Roberts standing on the stage, cancer survivor. Lord, living from the first day of his life till the last day of life on earth with a Down syndrome, special need whose prayer in life is that you'll loose his tongue so that he can worship you. 
shame it would be for those of us who have the ability to never do it. So God, I pray that you'll change us from the inside out. Change our understanding. Change our lifestyles. Change our actions. That, Lord, people may see our church in a Matthew 5.16 like They'll look at us and they'll recognize who God is and they'll praise God. People would see us in an Acts 4.14 like That they'll see us and recognize that God is there and He's done something. And God, help every volunteer who ever serves to realize serving is worship. Giving is worship. Living with the right heart attitude and responding and reacting the appropriate way. Those things are worship. God, help us to live a life of worship that transforms our life from who we were to who we're becoming in you. God, we love you and we need you. We pray that you'll imprint this message and this thought of worship on our hearts forever and ever and ever. And we ask these things in Jesus' name today. And everyone said, Amen.